Oh, you see a picture here of General David Petraeus, who served so well in Iraq and Afghanistan. Certainly uh, one of the most well-known and well-respected generals in recent U.S. history. And here we see that he was appointed to the CIA. That was uh, about a year ago. And so it's his wife, Holly, there. And sadly, about a month ago, it was announced that he had had an affair with his biographer, uh, Paula Broadwell. And uh, because of that affair, he stepped down from the CIA. The CIA being the treasurer of secrets of the United States, but unfortunately, David Petraeus had his own secret. Certainly, it's a great disappointment. We know that uh, sin is within us all and uh, can bring us low, as it did in his situation, his uh, reputation stained forever. The reason I bring that up is because we're going to be talking about a Bible hero this morning who is Israel's greatest military commander. At the same time, he was Israel's greatest king, and his name was David. And he also fell into a sexual affair that brought him along. Right now, we're in the midst of a series entitled, A Not-So-White Christmas. Last week, we kicked it off by looking at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing about Christ's genealogy is that there's five women, and typically there were never women in a genealogy of that day. And more interesting than that is that there were several of those women that had pretty interesting stories. So we're talking about these five different women as we move through uh, the Christmas season. You'll see the series here, Jesus' Family Tree. Last week, Bathsheba's bath, Tamar's trick, Rahab's rope, Mary's miracle on Christmas Eve, and then Ruth's romance. Well, let's take a look today at Bathsheba's bath. Now, we don't know a lot about Bathsheba, but we do know a lot about David. We'll be talking more about David uh, today, but uh, Bathsheba obviously played a critical role. And she is the one who's found in King David's line because, of course, he, she was his wife and uh, she gave birth uh, to Solomon. Well, we look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We encourage you to turn in your Bibles there. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, if this story of power and sex and murder and cover-up happen to a national leader today, this would be news for months and years to come. Back in, they did, back in that day, they didn't have the press that we have today, so it's all pretty secretive. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained at Jerusalem. It's interesting, in the spring of the year, well, that's when the war season started up. <laughs> Every year they had a, a war season, and they were always battling back and forth, battling for turf and for territory. And so they went off in the spring of the war when the kings go out to battle. But David, who was a king, didn't go out. He sent Joab, his military commander, and his servants or his soldiers with him, and all Israel. So uh, the military was fully engaged, but David wasn't there. But David remained in Jerusalem, which was very unusual, because David was always out front. He was always leading his troops. But for some reason, he had remained back. Now, we're not sure why. We maybe think, well, he was resting in the laurels of his success, kicking back enjoying everything that he thought that he had accomplished, enjoying the economic prosperity, enjoying 
and military conquests, enjoying being the most powerful nation in the world. Through David's military, military exploits, uh, Israel was the largest it would ever be. But he wasn't there this time. Now, there's one thing we know for sure, is that David was not walking closely with God. David did not have his guard up, or this sin would not have taken place. We look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. So his palace there, he had a great view of the city. And he saw from the roof of a, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. He looks down, sees a woman bathing. It's Bathsheba, and she was very beautiful. And the same phrase was used to describe Esther, who won a beauty pageant uh, for her king. So she was very attractive. And so he's looking down, and he sees her. And he observes her, and he lusts after her. Now, when I think about that, I'm thinking, okay, you're back in Israel. What are the chances are that you're, you're going to see a naked woman other than your wife? I mean, they were very modest in their dress. Uh, that was just a happen chance. But you think about today, what are the possibilities of seeing a naked woman or a naked man? Or, well... Unfortunately, it's, it's very, very common because of the Internet and uh, just with a click of the mouse, one can see things uh, that uh, are very illicit and uh, are wrong, are sinful. And it's really become a scourge upon our nation as well as a scourge upon the church. In fact, half all Christian men say they struggle with pornography to some degree or another. And it's such an insidious trap because it's so easy to access it. And it's so tempting for men especially, and of course men and women are impacted by this, but uh, it's so tempting because men are visually stimulated and therefore drawn to it. And it's an issue that the church needs to address, that we need to talk about. Because, again, you start to get into pornography, and that's wrong, but you can get deeper and deeper into some really disturbing things. And many men are, are addicted uh, to pornography, and it overwhelms their lives and uh, becomes very painful, and there's a lot of uh, fallout from it. And uh, so... I would really encourage you, if you struggle in this area of your life, men or women, uh, that you do something this week, that you make a choice that you're going to tell somebody, a small group leader, a friend, pastor, tell someone about what you're going through and what you're struggling with and repent of that sin and then seek help. Like there's a website, com that you can go to. And they have all kinds of resources for people who struggle with pornography. They have uh, internet filtering software. You have accountability partners uh, set up. But even more so for parents with kids growing up who are computer savvy. And I hear about these kids not getting books but getting tablets as they go to school. <laughs> like, wow, you know. I mean, they are in such danger now as they grow up in regards to pornography. I mean, we live in a sex-saturated environment already, right? And uh, so, uh, again, this is be going to become more and more a problem because Satan's going to continue to push it and people are going to become more and more involved. And when we think it's bad now, you wait 10, 20 years, and it's going to have such a tremendous impact upon uh, so many people's lives because sexual sin... The Bible says, uh, God says, it, it, you, you sin against yourself. It, 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 it gets into the very fabric of who you are, and it impacts uh, your relationship with your wife. And again, we need help. And I would encourage you to ask for help. And if you're a parent, 
do everything you can to watch your children and monitor what they're looking at. And so many parents just are clueless uh, and, and not involved in that area of their children's lives. Uh, Non-Christian parents and some Christian parents, and we've got to watch so closely to protect our child, our children from the world. So uh, he saw this woman in verse three, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, "Is not this Bathsheba, one of his servants?" Said, "Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite?" So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, there's a lot of different debates in the commentators about, okay, did Bathsheba seduce him in a sense because she knew where she lived and she knew maybe that King David was home and that she kind of, you know, let him know that she was interested? Now, we don't know. But what we do know is that David raped her because if a king asks you to come to the house because he wants to spend some time with you, you really don't have a lot of choice. So really it was a royal rape. Uh, I don't know what part she had in it, but we know that David initiated the sin and he sinned in a very significant uh, way, which brought a lot of pain uh, to so many people, as we'll see here. And it's interesting that the messenger, uh, the servant, tries, in a sense, maybe to warn David, hey, listen, she's married. She's not... Married just to anyone, but she's married to Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah was one of David's fighting men. When he was running away from Saul, uh, he was a fugitive. There were 30 guys who just were kind of unconnected. Like Uriah was a Hittite, and they kind of came around David, and they protected him, and, and they rose to the ranks as David came into power, and Uriah was one of those guys. David knew Uriah. He was a friend of his who had stood with him for so long. And, and again, so he was fully informed that she was married and Uriah was her husband. But he went ahead anyway. Verse 4, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Uh, she had her period at that time. Then she returned to her house. So everything seemed okay at this point. Uh, he had gotten away from it. Sitting back thinking, okay, well, I had a pleasurable afternoon and everything is uh, going to be fine. Nobody will ever know about it. And one of the problems with getting away with sin is then you do it over and over again, thinking that there won't be any ramifications. Because God is always watching. And he'll make sure that uh, you are disciplined for your sin. We look at 2 Samuel 11:5, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Well, that's a complication, isn't it? But so many times when, when we're thinking about sinning, and there's so much pressure to sin, isn't there? I mean, first of all, we want to sin because initially sin is pleasurable or we wouldn't do it. It's the pain that comes later. And then we have Satan encouraging us to sin. That, he structures the whole culture around sin, encouraging us to take that step. And, and so, therefore, uh, there's a lot of pressure. And so we try to think through, okay, how can I sin without being caught? And we think through all the possible problems and complications. And uh, I don't know what David was thinking. This is an obvious complication that would come uh, from this particular sin. But it got really complicated really fast. We just got to remember that we're in spiritual warfare. And Satan had... Put all of these factors together in a certain way, I believe, in order to give David the opportunity to sin. Satan cannot make us sin, but he can arrange our lives in such a way that we are brought into a temptation. And, uh, of course, David fell for it. And uh, Satan, of course, is the angel of light. He never shows up with a pitchfork because that would be like, oh, that's not good. That's the devil. <laughs> no. He shows up as something very, very attractive, something very, very appealing. Well, now we've got a problem. She's going to have a baby, and everybody's going to know that Uriah was off at battle when this happened, because it was battle season. So I've got to get Uriah back here, David thinks, in order to, you know, so we can spend some time with his wife, and they'll think it was his kid. 
So he goes into the cover-up mode now. Verse 6, So David sent word to Joab, that's his military commander, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going, just making small talk before he got to the agenda. Verse 8, And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. That's kind of an odd request, isn't it? Well, in that day, that was in double entendre, uh, innuendo for go spend some time with your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. It would be interesting to know what that present was. Maybe wine, cheese, a nice dinner. We don't know. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not let go, or did not go down to his house. He didn't follow the plan. <laughs> when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booze. And my lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. So here we see this remarkable contrast between David, who once was very godly in the way he lived his life. He was an example. He was a leader that brought Israel into a closer relationship with God, who's now encouraging Uriah to go spend some time with his wife. But Uriah says, no. My men, my soldiers are out in the field camping, and why should I, as their leader, experience pleasures that they can't experience? And no, I'm not going to do it. And David didn't expect that, as he was not <laughs> in a godly mentality or one of integrity. So he has another plan. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. So he's singing, Okay, I'll get this guy drunk. I'll dull his senses, I'll confuse his mind, and then he'll just do naturally what every guy would do when they're not thinking. No, even, even when Uriah was drunk, he did the right thing. Well, finally David goes into the plan uh, that led to Uriah's death. Verse 14, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand. Of Uriah, that that verse there is uh, shows how evil David was. David was evil. I mean, here he's sending the plan to kill Uriah, to murder him, and he gives the plan to Uriah to carry to Joab in order that he might carry it off. How evil is that? You think you'd send it by somebody else's hand, right? But he has no scruples here. He just wants Uriah dead. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also now, we all have impressed upon our minds the story of David and Goliath. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath, right? And you have David, of course, the underdog, taking the slingshot and killing Goliath. And you have David cutting off the head of Goliath. And we all cheer and we say, way to go, David! 
You did God's work. But I think the problem with this story is it's not clear enough to us how uh, savage David was. I just want you to close your eyes for a second here. Okay, I want you to imagine this with me. I want you to imagine that David is in his palace and he invites Uriah in for dinner. And then during dinner, imagine David walking over to Uriah, however you think David might look or Uriah might look, and him taking out a knife and stabbing Uriah in the heart. Just imagine that. David taking out a knife and stabbing Uriah in the heart and looking at the expression of Uriah of just shock and the blood flowing down his chest and Uriah slumping to the floor. And David standing over Uriah with his bloody knife in his hand and Uriah dead at his feet. Okay. Now, why did I ask you to do that? Because I want you to fully understand that that's exactly what happened. He had his hitman, Joab, right? But he's the one who did it. And that image needs to be just as powerful as Goliath. As great as David's faith was in God with Goliath. you got to contrast with, with the... the the evilness of his heart, where he would take Uriah's life. It's really the lowest point of David's life, no doubt. We don't like to think about our heroes like that, right? Again, as we've said, God tells it like it is. We're all very sinful. Well, Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah... And on top of that, one more thing, is not only did, did Uriah die, but Joab, just to make it look good, he sent a contingent of men to go with Uriah. So nobody would think that Joab was set up. So who knows? Ten, fifteen guys died for David's cover-up. When the wife of Uriah... A wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to the house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's the first commentary we have on this whole story from God. But the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. And I think all of us need to ask a question. I mean, David, the shepherd boy, writing all these psalms about God that we read, uh, leading Israel back to God. I mean, how can that guy go from being so in tune with God? Again, God called him a man after his own heart and how could he go from that position to murdering another man in cold blood? My friends, the answer is it's the deceitfulness of his heart and the wickedness of our heart. So many times we fool ourselves thinking, well, you know, I wouldn't sin in that way or that way or that. No, 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 no the right situation when you're not walking closely with Jesus uh, you'd be amazed at what you do and some of you know from personal experience as you look back on your own life and you say wow I, <laughs> I don't believe I did that and, and that's why it's so important in spiritual warfare that we've got to know the danger that's within us not Satan I mean he's another factor but I mean, we've got the capacity to do some pretty, pretty sinful stuff, you know, if we go down the wrong track. And uh, we have to come to grips with that and know that about ourselves. Because this false confidence that we can have, well, I've been a Christian this long and I've had a track record like this, it means nothing. You look at David, 
And if he fell, certainly we can fall. Remember Solomon? We talked about him being the wisest man in the world, and he fell. And it can happen to all of us. I don't care how old you are. <laughs> 90 years old, whatever. It doesn't matter. That heart is just as sinful as ever. And we've got to... We've got to stay close to Jesus. And, the, and that really is the essence of what I'm trying to say here. Is that the only way to protect us from a sinful heart, of course, is number one, to become a Christ follower and have your, your life transformed by the Holy Spirit and have Jesus come within you and uh, to be seen as pure in the eyes of God and be, again, uh, accepted by Him into His family. But that's just the first step. Then every day after that, You've got, to, you've got to stay close to Jesus. You've, you've got to walk with Him. You've got to listen to Him. You've got to abide with Him. You've, got to, you've just got to have Him as the focal point of your life. And that's why we talk so much about the daily office, spending time with Jesus, uh, because it's a friendship. And, and, you know, the daily office, once or twice a day, whatever, uh, is just the beginning because that's the idea that you, you create this pattern in your life where all day long you are spending time with God. You're in communication with Him. And you're walking closely because, friends, it's so dangerous out in the world. So dangerous. You've got you to walk with Jesus. You've got to you know, have His power move you because you, you just can't do it on your own. You're, you're, you're dead on your own. And, and, and men, I want to encourage you. You've been called to be the men, leaders, that is, of your family. And when you think of your wife and especially your children and the fact that all week long they are exposed to Satan's culture through media, through friends, through all other types of venues... And uh, 24-7, you know, they're exposed uh, to this stuff. And you've got to ask yourself the question, are they walking with Jesus? And how can I, as a leader of my home, help them to walk with Jesus more consistently? Well, you've got to lead. You've got to lead by, first of all, walking with Jesus yourself and talking about your walk with Jesus, by encouraging them to walk with Jesus many ways that you can do that. And you've got to encourage them to be an integral part of this church family because God gave us the church in order for us to be sustained in the middle of a very evil world. You know, many Christians just, you know, are just freaking out at how evil our culture is becoming. And certainly it's a great concern, but I tell you what, first century culture was a whole lot worse, okay? <laughs> the people that... Paul was writing to, oh man, it was really bad back then. Or we're going that direction, but we haven't reached uh, the degradation that was part of their society. So this is nothing new. It's not like, oh, we've got a whole, you know, this is much worse. No, 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 no. But that's why the church was so important, because this is a place where we come and where we're charged and we're recalibrated and where we train our children and when we encourage them and, and we have godly relationships and where we encourage one another and love each other, exhort each other, you know, challenge each other, all that type of thing. You've got to have that. And men, you've got to be sure that your family is engaged. You've got to be sure that you're here on a weekly basis. You've got to be sure they're involved in one and kids of the kingdom and our youth groups and every opportunity you can to expose them because where else are they getting it? Where else are they being taught how to live life with Christ? And if nobody will come, you come alone. You say, well, I'm the most immature person. I mean, my, you know, no, it doesn't matter. Show up. Right? Because Satan's out to get your kids. Satan's out to get your wife. Satan's out to get you. And if, you, if you're here on a regular basis, well, of course, more importantly, your walk with God throughout the week, you're protecting yourself. And most importantly, you're protecting your family. Well, there was a year that went by before God dealt with David. But we see some insight from Psalm 32 about his experience during this year. He writes about it. He says, For when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
you ever been racked with guilt about sin that you hadn't dealt with yet? Edward Graham Poe has the, uh, the poem, The Telltale Heart, about the man who writes in the first person about how he had killed a particular individual. It doesn't really tell us about the relationship with the individual, but he buried him under the, buried him under the floorboards of the house. And uh, you know, he hears his heart beating, and he thinks it's coming from the dead guy. And uh, finally the police show up, and, and this, this heart gets louder and louder and louder until finally he confesses and he says, I did it. It's very... <laughs> the body's under the floorboard, and the officers are gone. They don't hear anything. Friends, that's exactly what guilt is all about. And, and I tell you what, the Holy Spirit, <laughs> he's the convictor. <laughs> the convictor. <laughs> oh. He'll work you over, man. He will take you down. <laughs> if you're a child of God, He's going to take you down and He's going to make life miserable until you repent, until you own up to what you did and claim God's grace and forgiveness. Yeah. Maybe you're there today. Maybe right now you feel very uncomfortable. So why didn't I stay home today? Why is this the one day I decided to go to church? Yeah. Well, the convictor brought you here. Convictor said, go to church. I've got a message for you. <laughs> All right? Yeah. The message is to repent. Stop playing around with sin. Stop doing your own thing. Submit to Jesus Christ. You know it's true. Now, this, this is so rich. Um, when Nathan, who is the prophet of God in that day, comes to David, and uh, God sets us all up and tells Okay, it's time to go to David, and we're going to confront him with all this. And verse uh, 1 of uh, chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men. Tells him a story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him. With his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup. I know some of you do this with your pets. It's just sick. But <laughs> that's what we're talking about here, right? <laughs> you know? Hey, come here, drink from my cup. And lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Like one of the family, like our family pets, right? Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So you got this rich guy with all this, uh, his flocks. And, and when a guest comes by, instead of taking just one lamb from his thousands of lambs, he decides to take this one very precious lamb from this poor guy who lived next door. And David responds. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because because he had no pity. So David sees it in spades. This man is evil. This man deserves to die. You know, all of us are synatologists. We are so good at spotting sin in other people. We work at it all our lives. <laughs> so... Yeah, we'll, we'll look at other people. Yeah, he's got that issue, no doubt about that. Yeah, boy, I tell you, I hope the Lord gets a hold of him and, you know, shakes him up and brings him to where I am. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're just looking all over the place. And we see all this sin around us, but we are blind to our own sin because we are in denial. We don't want to see our own sin, right? And I just love this line. This is just such a powerful passage. Nathan said to David, You are the man. 
You are the rich man who stole the precious lamb from his poor neighbor. You're the one with all the wives who stole Uriah's wife. You are the man who deserves to die. You are the man with no pity. You're the man who owes big time. Oh, oh. And that, 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 it's really interesting here because he goes into an, a question to David saying, why? Why did you do this? And again, he's speaking on behalf of God. He's a prophet, right? Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. He says, Thus says the Lord, you know, God's speaking to you right now. God is saying to David, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave your master's house, Saul's house and Saul's wives, into your arms. And gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. I gave you everything. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. God was saying, David, I loved you. I love you. I, I gave you so much. Why? Why did you sin against me in this way? I would have given you more. Is that what you wanted? Why did you do things your own way? Why did you rebel against me when I've been so good to you? Why? Why do we sin? Why do you... Would we spit into God's face? We decide that we've got a better way. Verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Nathan says, David, you think you've been hiding something. You have not hidden anything from God or from me. I know exactly what went down. And he goes on with the consequences. God forgives, but there are consequences to every sin. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And he's talking about Absalom, one of his sons, who decides that he should be king instead of his father. And so... He has a whole strategy in which he takes over uh, the kingship. And David flees for his own life. And it goes on, And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, that's Absalom, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his sons. So he takes some of David's wives up to the palace roof after David's left, and he sets up a tent up there, and everybody knows what's going on, and basically just uh, put it in the face of his father embarrassing him, bringing shame upon the family. A very ugly, ugly story, which really was discipline on God's part. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before Israel and before the Son. We do sin secretly, right? We, we lay our, our uh, plans out and we know exactly how it's going to go down, how we're going to get what we want, even though it's not what God wants. And we think we're going to keep this under wraps. But sin is always exposed in one way or another. And that's why it's so dangerous. There are so many other points of discipline for David. He lost the son that he bore with Bathsheba. Uh, his daughter was raped by a stepson. Uh, and again, Israel was at its zenith. At this point, it was all downhill from there. Eventually, it led Israel to be divided and then into captivity. Now, listen to this verse. This is the one we really need to pay attention to. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, remember, David was king. Total power here. 
Now, there were a lot of kings in the Old Testament when the prophets came to them, and they didn't like what they said because they were deep in sin as well. Uh, you know, they had them banished. <laughs> they had them put away. They had them put in prison. They killed them. David could have done any of that with Nathan, but he didn't because he had a love for God. And he knew that he had done wrong. And so he, he doesn't make any excuses, which we're so good at. He doesn't try to dodge it. No double talk. No blaming here. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He just lays it out there. He knows that he's going to die. He knows he's going to die. It's the end by admitting this. But he repents. He repents. He chooses to repent. When we think about this Christmas season, you know, you always ask a question, what are you going to give to Jesus this Christmas season? You know what Jesus wants? He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants your love. He wants all of you. And for you and I, the one thing that keeps Jesus from having us is sin. Because we want what we want, not what God wants. So I really want to challenge you, and I challenge myself this Christmas season to give the gift of repentance <laughs> to Jesus. Give the gift of repentance. I have sinned against the Lord. How have you and I sinned against the Lord? Now, some people sin through their work, and so they live for their career, and they live for building their bank account, and Jesus is in the back seat, and uh, that's all they're about. Some people live for fun. Everything in life should be fun, and they try to move away from any type of pain and not deal with things that God wants them to deal with because, no, it's all about my enjoyment. Other people live for stuff. I really believe that Black Friday is a worship day in the United States. <laughs> now, again, I was out there too. But uh, at the same time, you know that there are people out there that stuff is king in their life, not Jesus. <laughs> stuff is king. And that's just wrong. I mean... Let me ask you this question. If you were to sit down with a close friend, a close, a close godly friend this season, and they asked you, hey, you know, what did you give to God this year? Would you feel okay with sharing that? Or would you be embarrassed? Think, oh, man, I mean, God entrusted me with everything. I'm supposed to manage it. And I really haven't. You know. How about negativity? Negativity. You're just negative. You're critical. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I don't know. Uh, just ask your wife, your kids. <laughs> so I'll tell you. Uh, gossiping, addicted to porn, food, alcohol. It goes on and on, right? All different types of sins, and we all usually have weak areas where we're susceptible. But we need to repent. We need to repent. Verse 13, Here, here's... Here's the gospel. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. After all that, because David repents, he says, God has put away your sin. You shall not die. God is going to show you grace and mercy because you repented. But we need to repent first before we receive His mercy. And this is a theme throughout all Scripture is that if we just repent, if we just come to God in our humbleness and say, God, I have sinned against You, He will show incredible grace to us. Psalm 51, I really want to encourage you to study and reflect upon during your daily office this week. Psalm 51:17. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart. And again, Psalm 51 actually is David's journal about the repentance process and what he went through after 
this whole incident with Nathan. That's just beautiful. Uh, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. Now, if you go to your boss and you really made a major mistake and you said, I, I'm really sorry, <laughs> and you're, oh, no big deal. You know, I'm going to forgive you. <laughs> or you go to a relative that's difficult to deal with and you said something you shouldn't have. And will you just please forgive me? You go to your spouse. <laughs> you know, people are really not that forgiving when it comes right down to it. Wouldn't you agree? Doesn't come quickly. But God, man, I tell you, as soon as we repent, He forgives. How beautiful is that? Psalm 51, 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. God purifies us. God cleans us. No matter how dirty we might feel, God restores us. Yeah, as we move into the Christmas season here and talk about this gift of repentance, you know, here are some key verses that I would encourage you to reflect upon. Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So, the gift you want to give to God is you want to go to Him today. And you want to spend some time alone. And you want to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Search me. Uh, carpet, in, uh, carpet cleaning businesses sometimes will have a service where they get rid of uh, pet urine. And what they'll do to prove to you that it's a real problem is they'll take out, take out a powerful black light and they'll shine it throughout the house. And all those urine crystals start to glow. It's not like Christmas lights. Uh, <laughs> it's sick. <laughs> Dribbles and drops all over the walls and the carpets and the lampshades. And it's kind of like, you know, especially if it's the wife. Ah, I'll pay you anything to get rid of all this stuff. Please do it right away. I've got to move out of the house until it's done. <laughs> well, that's what happens when God puts his black light on us. And shows us our sin. We say, ah, you know, God, remove it from me. We've got to repent and we've got to be willing to let God do that searching deep into our iceberg, deep into our hearts. And see where the sinful attitudes and orientation lies in order that he might restore us. Do you have the joy of your salvation this morning? Is it fresh? Is it real? Is it present? Some of you haven't had the joy of your salvation in a long time. Why? Because you haven't sinned in your life. You've been playing with sin. You've been entertaining sin. Of course you're not going to have the joy of salvation. Do not blame it on God when you don't have the joy of your salvation. It's your fault because you have embraced sin. And the only way to get rid of sin is kick it out, is to repent and say, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses. No blaming. It's me. I've done the deed over and over again. And Lord, I repent. And the most beautiful thing is that He restores us, right? We're all in a restoration process. And it's so hard sometimes to be restored. But God keeps working us day by day, loving us, showing grace to us, empowering us, giving us new hope. One of the problems is that we just won't let go of our sin when God has already done that. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, as far 
does He remove our transgressions from us. You know, for some of you, you're still condemning yourself for sins you committed a long time ago that God's forgiven you for and He's forgotten about. May you still let Satan use that thing against you every time you want to step out and do something special for God. Every time you want to feel good about your relationship with God, Satan brings that ugly thing up. Satan is the accuser, God's Word says. You've got to stop him from doing that. <laughs> You've got to claim God's promises, right? God is such a good God. And again, I just want to say, no matter what your past is, and you say, well, Pastor, if you knew my past, no. I've heard a lot of things, and I'm sure there's a lot of things I haven't heard, but bottom line, God forgives every sin. All right? He will restore you. He will give you new hope. Yeah, there are consequences, but God will even help you to deal with the consequences. Isn't he good? Yes, he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story, the story of sin, and more importantly, the story of repentance and the story of grace that encourages our heart today because we're all very sinful, Lord. We're, uh, we're just uh, we can be very evil. But thank you that you're restoring us and teaching us and you're tender and you're you're patient and I pray that we would wait upon you and trust in you. I pray for all my friends and myself this Christmas that we would let you search our hearts with your black light and help us to see the ugliness and to repent and just uh, clean out a new room in our house, your house. Things maybe we haven't even seen before. He's doing a new work in our lives and a new work in our church. In Christ's name, amen.